0: Stay hungry, stay foolish.
1: To be successful, innovation must overcome constraints in six areas individual constraints, group constraints, organizational constraints, industry, societal, and technological constraints. Today's guest offers guidance on fostering creativity and overcoming the hurdles of each area of constraint. He's Professor of Business Strategy and Innovation with Vanderbilt University and author of Creative People Must Be Stopped, Six Ways We Kill Innovation Without Even Trying. Welcome to the show, David A. Owens. Thank you so much, Aiden. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, having me on. It's great to have you on the show. I've been looking forward to this chat for a long time. You've a brilliant TED talk. What I loved about the book was I thought of people like I did work in industry and you have no framework to approach innovation and oftentimes we get innovation and creativity mixed up it'd be great to get your views on that guys i spent a long time trying to to think about how do you be more
0: creative how do you be more innovative and it took me a long time it's probably about you know, 10 or 15 years before i realized that that was like what do you call it a fool's errand or the, the basically the wrong way to be approaching it marking up the wrong tree i could think of 100 cliches but that all really basically mean that's probably not the way to do it What I realized was that I think creativity is really overrated. Certainly the American society, I would imagine in uh, most societies in the the world, it's about being creative is like the most important thing. It's so important to be creative. And I think actually there's lots of ways we think about creativity that are not that useful. In that TED talk you you referred to, I did a a thing where I was sort of playing with some ideas, some ideas about how Things that we think are creative are actually not creative, and I'm happy to share a few if you if you're interested in that in hearing that, please do, man, please do. So one thing I was thinking about was the iPod. So I show a picture of the iPod. People say, "Oh my God, that's so creative! That's so creative!" I go, "That, that is not creative at all." Because if you sort of go into it and look at it, the iPod was um, based on technology that uh, Diamond Rio had done the Diamond Rio 500 three years before, and you know Steve Jobs didn't invent music, didn't invent digital music, didn't um, do any of those things, and so actually. It was just a lot of really simple things put together into a format that sort of worked but it wasn't like any kind of like radical invention or anything like really um astoundingly new and so that was one that you know we think of it as really this creative thing in fact it's not creative it, i'll talk about what it is is it, innovative but it's really not creative um another one i saw actually had an article around um cristo uh in the in the i think it was the new york times this morning and it was talking about cristo wrapping islands and i thought um he wrapping all sorts of things, and, and I ran across this one where he wrapped a number of islands uh, off the coast of Florida. I thought, wow, is that really creative, wrapping some islands? Actually, I mean, he had been wrapping all kinds of things before that. So it's, it's like the, the idea of wrapping the island, like the creative part is really not the hard part. I think the hard part is actually wrapping the islands. It's not thinking of wrapping the islands. Um, another one, uh, just one last one people think is very creative is the um, the post-it note. And so the post-it note is kind of interesting. It took a long time for it. It was about 11 or 12 years for it to actually make it into production. Um, and you might argue, well, that's because it was so creative. And in fact, it's it's not really that creative. It's just you know a small piece of paper, too small to write on, an ugly color with bad adhesive on the back. You say, well, how's that creative? I mean, that's really not uh, that creative. Um, but what those things are is they, they have a different property, which is that they're innovative. And they're also innovation, innovative inside of a set of very strict constraints. And that was the magic of it for me is to turn it around and say, the problem of being innovative is not – sort of thinking outside the box and and forgetting everything you know, but in fact, it's really understanding what you know, understanding what's possible and what's not possible, and then working within that and sort of deciding where to push out what I call constraints and and where where you have to actually honor them and where you can actually violate the constraints or the prior understanding of how things are. One of the
1: things I thought was really interesting was we have this kind of mask we wear in society, and we believe we need to behave a certain way. And for innovation to prosper, we need to let go of that. And I, I thought one of the exercises you use is really interesting where, and I'd love if you'd share this with our audience, the bumper sticker right. exercise you used where it, it led to the name of the book, which is creative people must be
0: <laughs> Yeah, that, um, it is, in fact, uh, um, a. Uh, I was driving around town. I, I live here in Nashville, Tennessee, and there's lots of musicians and creative types here. I saw a bumper sticker on a car because I had, uh, up to that point, I had been thinking about, um, like, what is the the most important theory of innovation? If I could only think of one thing, if I, if I were going to die tomorrow, what would I tell people about innovation? And I was really struggling with this question, and then one day I see this car drive by with the bumper sticker that says, "Creative people must be stopped." I'm thinking. Wait a minute, like that's So I started chasing the car literally in my car. I'm um, trying to take a picture of it. I almost crashed into it because I was trying to take a picture with my camera because it was so it was sort of like this profound moment of um, of insight about um, about it. And and it was kind of interesting. It, it sort of has, has sort of two layers to it. On the one layer is. Um, when I ask people, do they, is this true, that most of them say no, no, right away. They say, no, no, no should, people should not be stopped. We need creativity. We need change. We need innovation. We need a new kind of world. Um, and then I ask them, hey, do you have any kids at home? And they're like, yeah. I say, well, do you still believe creative people must not be stopped? And then have them think about some of the stories of them and their children. Of my, I had a daughter, um, uh, one, one episode of The Daughter and the duct Tape. And the dog was like, okay, stop. <laughs> Whatever. She was looking for the dog and had some duct tape in her hand. I'm like, nope, not happening. Whatever it is, I don't want. I don't want. <laughs> I want to go there. Um, and so that sort of uh, was, was sort of on the one layer is sort of like the you know that people have ideas and sometimes they're just not good ideas or at least from a certain perspective they're not good ideas. But then the other layer was to say if 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 in fact creative people must be stopped or at least if the world behaves that way. Then as innovators, our job is to say, how are they going to stop me? And if they're going to stop me, you know, if creative people want to be stopped and I'm one of those people, they're going to stop me. Like, what do I do? How do I take evasive action? How do I become, in my words, was well, strategic around um, getting past the stopping? How do I stop the stopping uh, in a way that allows me to sort of to be innovative, but also um, do things that, that matter in the world? Because just having ideas is, doesn't change anything in the world. Um, it's having ideas that are
1: actionable and that get acted on. Those, that's the way you change the world. I love this, David, because you say innovation is not so much about product anymore or the creativity, but it's increasingly about changing values and values that meet society where society is today. Yes, that's absolutely true. And I think that um, you can
0: move society to another place, but it always starts with where society is. And I think, um, you know, there's, there's uh, um, the, the, sort of the, the what do you call it, axiomatic, the axiomatic that the term of, of um w- w- basically what they say is like when you're an artist like you can't break the rules until you know the rules like once you know the rules then you can break the rules and then jazz music and all sorts of places there it's that way i really think there's some truth in that of understanding where things are now because otherwise my um my breaking the rules is just is just absurd it's like dada it doesn't make any sense Whereas if I know what the rules are and I say, OK, if I could actually just go a little bit past this one rule here, I might get to a really interesting place. And and so, like, you know, who was the guy who wrote with only a lowercase? Was that James Joyce? I'm not sure. Someone, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> someone like that, right? But yeah. And so so you write with only lowercase. I mean, it's clear that he knows how to write with uppercase, but writing with only lowercase sort of brought in a whole different feel for it. But it, if you didn't know how to write, if you didn't know that there's a thing called uppercase and lowercase and that he was actually willfully violating that, it would not have had the same effect on people. And so I think you really do have to know what I call the constraints, that is, what, you know, what are this, what's going on in that situation? What are the kind of things that stop you from moving in one direction or another? Um, and it's only by understanding those that you can actually get to new places, because some constraints are, are real constraints. I mean, if you say we're going to invent this new thing, but we don't have any money, not having money is a real constraint. And so, things that cost money are probably not going to work <laughs> for that particular idea. And so, so I, I like to, to, to think about things in that way. So It's almost the inverse of being creative. Is like thinking way out there, way out in the, in, in the um, blue sky, or out pie in the sky. But I think it sort of starts from a place of understanding. Okay, where are we right now? What, what's happening with us? What's
1: stopping this, this innovation from happening right now? One of the things I loved about the book was for many businesses and business leaders they hire in a head of innovation or they decide you know what we need to innovate more and they hire somebody and oftentimes they don't know why they're hiring them they don't know what that person's going to do and then on the flip side that person doesn't know what they're going to do and what I love about your work is you work both in education but also you consult an industry and you've consulted NASA and Nissan etc but the, the six points i'd love i'd love to touch on these and go through them if you would six points of constraints starting with individual constraints yeah so the place i started i mean the place i really started with this
0: was um so sort of the joke was basically the worst place for innovation is the airport and people are like why is that and i said well because the airport bookstore you pull a book off the. you know you go in the airport bookstore and there's always like books on innovation this innovation that at least there were for a long time there um and and the problem was, depending on whichever book you pull off the shelf, it gave you one prescription for innovation. Like, oh, here's one. you know, Hire a bunch of Leonardo da Vinci's. And if you pull the book off right next to it, it says, oh, no, like, don't w- worry about being disrupted. You might get disrupted. And the question for me was, was, when does the one book apply and when does the other book apply? And I really couldn't figure it out. It took me a long time, a lot of reading, a lot of, of sort of re- rethinking about how, um, first of all, how we think about innovation and how people write about it, but also how academic world is one sort of chops up the world and so when people write books they write it from a perspective And so let me just cut to the chase of what I'm talking about here so I talk about these six constraints first constraint the most primary one being the individual constraint so that's the constraints that we have as individuals if you say innovation requires ideas and you ask the question where do ideas come from well they come from people and sometimes people have good ideas and sometimes people don't have good ideas and so the question for me was, like, what makes people have good ideas or not? Um, the things I think about there are, um, to have an idea, you have to have new information. So if you want to have an idea, a, a new idea, a creative idea, you need to base that on new kinds of information. To have that idea, you then also need to have different thinking styles, different ways of thinking, different problem-solving strategies. Sometimes it's right brain, sometimes it's left brain, sometimes it's analogic, sometimes it's linear, or something, Right? so there's different styles of thinking. And so let's say we get new information and we think of it in different ways, we then also have to express our ideas. Our ideas have to actually come out of our body in some way um, to have effect in the world. And that's to either convince other people or for people to help us make it better or for us to test our ideas. And so I was thinking if these three things are true, that is, I have to bring in new information, I have to think about it in different ways, then I have to express my ideas that come from that, thinking new kinds of information in different ways, what can go wrong there? And so for me, what can go wrong is what I think of as a constraint is sometimes we don't bring in new information. I was thinking like, why would we not bring in new information? Well, sometimes because, well, we're lazy. We don't want to bother to walk down the hall and ask, you know, Joe, who actually happens to be a world expert on this thing, or we don't want to go to the library, or we don't want to go to data that's not in the form that we are used to. And so it takes a lot of work. Um, So there are lots of reasons why we don't bring in new information. And so if I take in new information, if I don't take in new information, if I use the same old information I always get, the same industry reports, you know, the same analyst reports, the same everything the same, I'm not going to get to a new place or it's going to be much more difficult. On On the second step, I could bring in new information, but if I don't think about it in different ways... That's a problem also, because it may be that I'm used to thinking about it a certain way. It's almost five o'clock. I got to go home. and If I do it this other way, I have to do a spreadsheet. That's going to take me an hour. I'm going to be late to pick up my kids. Um, There are lots of reasons why we don't think of things in different ways. And Then the the last one about getting the idea out of our body, basically expressing our ideas, that sometimes we don't practice uh, expressing our ideas, that our ideas are – we barely understand them ourselves. We're not sure if other people understand them. That already creates kind of a constraint and kind of a barrier. Uh, some people like to think in, you know, data. Some people like to think in visuals. Some people like to think, you know, and, and and if we're not able to express our ideas in ways that people understand, they're going to just blow us off. They're going to say like, that. that's not meaningful to me because I can't understand it. And if you think about it, I mean, all this is, is really in, in some ways saying that if I don't um, If I can't express things in a way that you understand and I'm asking you to to change or I'm asking you to accept some proposition for change, you would be very irrational to accept it. In other words, if I ask you to do something and you don't understand what I'm asking you to do and you do it anyway, that would be really irrational. And often we think of innovation that somehow because we had an idea, that means people are obligated to accept it and to act on it, even without regarding whether they understand it or not. So, so that individual level thing for me was sort of like the world of psychologists. It was like when you think inside the brain, like what's going on for a person, how they have ideas. Um, and that's really is, is um, where sort of innovation starts was with a creative idea. But the kind of constraints, the kind of, of barriers I'm talking about are really, and they're really simple things. Like get new information. Like, duh, <laughs> of course, right? Think about it in different ways. Like, yeah, no, no shit, right? Whatever, um, <laughs> express your ideas to people so they can understand them. It's like, yeah, of course, right? Um, yet we don't bother to do that because sometimes we're busy
1: or we're afraid or we're, you know, there's lots of reasons why. Well, it sounds simple. It's difficult to make it sound simple, but also, like, even take the physiological things that are going on. I loved what you said here. So our, our brain is stopping the floodgates of information for a reason because if we had way too much information coming in, we'd grind to a halt because it's just way to information overload and therefore it filters the information and this is why we have habits this is why our basal ganglia takes over all this kind of stuff right and and i love what you're saying so you're saying open certain doors in your mind to allow new information in and Mm -hmm. or you know you'll you'll eventually start thinking differently and maybe across an organization we have to do this as well right right especially
0: yeah if you if you just take the substitute the idea of an organization for what i in the model i talk about as you know it goes on inside your head but inside the person think about what goes on inside the organization where does the organization get new information from what problem solving strategies is the organization really comfortable with and how does the organization sort of create value that is express its ideas right so the organization has resources that has things and it creates new value from that. And, um, that has to be, uh, apparent to people outside. If I'm going to give you my money to buy this new, whatever, phone, car, wh- anything app, I need to understand that. I need to understand the kind of value that you're creating. And so, yeah, so you, I think that's absolutely the case. And it's, it's the case that we don't often, um, think of those, those really, really basic things of you know, information and, and um, problem-solving strategies of things uh, when we go after um, having new ideas. The other thing that, it, it, to me, it, it brings up, and this I've been thinking more about this lately, is that um, we often think that innovation is like expensive, it requires time, it requires more resources. And I've been thinking about that in some ways that, uh, for one, is um, this act of, of looking at data differently or going and finding new data it's very inefficient. Like I have to go find some new way. when I could just go look at the industry association magazine, why <laughs> it has the information, like, why should I look somewhere else? It's like, no, you have to go find some new information. Then when you get that information, you don't understand it because it's different. It's not the way you normally work. And so that takes time to sort of understand it. And then when you're expressing those I- new ideas, the people around you, they're used to the old way we used to talk about this stuff and the old kind of data we used to get. So it takes them a lot of work to figure out what it is you're talking about and, and helping you assess, is this a better way or, or, or a less better way than we, the way we used to do it? And all that learning requires time and it requires Slack resources. That is, we have the capability of having people work on this or having time in people's days to work on this. Uh, so we hear of companies like 3M and other companies that have people work on unauthorized or unofficial projects. Um, and it's to give them that time. And to the extent that an organization is so focused on production, on efficiency, on, you know, making things really smooth, you're going to select out that time, any kind of steps in your process that, that add in uh, extra steps like that, or, or what would be considered wasted time is are going to come out. And so we end up with what we have, which is people who are totally overscheduled, people who are totally overwhelmed with the, with the information that they have. And so to go back to your earlier point, bring in the, the poor schluck you hired as the innovation person <laughs> and say, okay, now go for it, man. Here's all the people Like, go make them innovate. And you're thinking, why would I do that? I have a day job. Because you're asking me to think about stuff that's probably not going to work. of almost by definition. And I get paid based on what I do do, that we do know how to do, that we do know how to measure. So why would I do that? That would make no sense. And so I think that it's a really hard task to step into an organization, in one of those roles. And I talk to people all the time who are in those roles. And it is a
1: very um, difficult place to be. It's a dangerous job, actually, because firstly, like, and this is what I, again, going back to your book, you need to define what the organization thinks innovation is. And then yes. yeah. like you say, psychologically you need to understand their constraints, their motivations, etc. And this is a lovely segue for the next constraint that you call out, which is group constraints. And then we need to unlock group constraints. Yeah. So the, in the model of individuals
0: work in groups and the group constraints, that is the things that stop you from a group level, are really different than the um, individual level, at least the, the way I've defined them. And I think about things like emotion, things like culture, uh, things like process, even the environment that you're in. And so it could be that I'm really good at bringing in new information. I'm processing it in my brain and I'm actually expressing my ideas. Um, and so let's say I have five of those new, new Leonardo da Vinci's in my organization. And I just have the boss walk in and say, that's a dumb idea. That'll never work. Last person said that got fired. Um, and then suddenly innovation's gone, right? And so th- having the idea or having the ability to generate ideas is not enough because anything interesting, in fact, that happens in organizations is involves other people. And so we have to get other people involved. We have to work with other people. And if I'm afraid to share ideas with you, that's a really hard place because I can be as creative as I want. I can have the, the best ideas in the world. But if I can't get you to actually listen to me, or if I can't get you to make me fe- to to not make me feel like I'm going to lose my job, if this experiment fails, then that becomes really problematic. And so there, I like to to think about the um, you know the, the the feelings that you have when you're working with a group. And sometimes um, sometimes we use groups. I think just to use them. I asked a group once that it's like, do you do mercy invitations in your organization? They said, what's that mercy invitations? I, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I said, "Oh, where well, you invite someone to a meeting because you're afraid you're going to hurt their feelings if you don't." And they say, "Oh, yeah, we do that all the time." Um, and so it's sort of interesting. And I say, "Well, if you invite someone because you're not hurting their feelings, uh, are they always are productive? I mean, are they productive in the meeting?" And they say, "Well, no. Sometimes people come in there, and I don't want to invite them because they're they, they they're a disaster in the meeting." Because they criticize and they're showboating and they're, you know, bringing in irrelevant stuff and they don't show up on time and and whatever. And I say, well, why do you keep inviting them? They say, well, because, you know, I'm having mercy on them. And sort of funny because in organizations that we um, expect all this efficiency and yet we tolerate all this inefficiency in the groups that we work in. Healthcare is not as good as it should be and could be, but they certainly do don't do mercy invitations when they're operating on you. Right. Everyone who's in that room needs to be in that room for a reason. Somebody's sitting sitting in the corner eating popcorn, dropping it. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oops. Well, why are you doing that? Why are you yeah. So so the group level is is interesting to me. Also the um the space uh to use the healthcare um example. I, I met a guy recently, he works at a large healthcare uh concern here in uh, Nashville in you know, lots of, of um um hospitals. And he's pushing to um, have their IT people, that is, their people who do lots of coding and stuff like that, basically writing computer code, um, to get them a special space where they can work. And he says, look, we do it for for doctors operating. Why don't we do it for the coders? And and the idea with the coders is they're supposed to be able to sit in some normal, uh, normal with air quotes, uh you know, office kind of setting and, and do their work, uh, um, you know, by sitting at their desk and answer their phone when it rings and things like that. And that's actually not the most productive way to write code. Um, he's using a thing called pair coding, pair coding, where you put two coders together writing the same code. It turns out it's much more efficient if you just do the data. And they're big time data people, so they, they're doing the data of this. But then whenever a senior executive walks by and sees two people working on the same piece of code, they're like, what the hell? What's going on here? Like, that can't be efficient. But in fact, they catch each other's mistakes. Uh, they, they add uh, different insights than the other person would bring uh, otherwise. Um, they motivate each other. When one person is slacking a little bit, the other one's like, come on, man, let's get this. We're almost done. Let's get this done. Um, and so what he's chosen to do is to do that offsite. So he's got a space offsite where those coders are able to work in that way. And I've actually met a second organization uh, that does the same exact thing. First of all, have them do pair coding, but then have them do it outside of the mothership because they sort of don't understand um, the the social nature of this innovation that they're creating. This piece of uh, software code that people are writing, and so that sort of invokes partly the um, the space, also like you know the, the the actual place that we're working together. If we can't share our ideas, if we don't have a whiteboard, or if we don't have um, easel pads, if we don't have markers, it really does slow down the process of us being able to communicate our ideas to each other and being able to help each other make our ideas better. And so that's the, the sort of this group level. I really spend a lot of time thinking about that. And most organizations, when they ask me for help or when they ask me to, um, either to help them think about um, what they're doing, there's often the group level, how you do groups is really as uh, a... Um, so, sort of, for me, it's like low-lying fruit. It's a place where you can do lots of different things that are very that change really change things, um, but that we often don't think of because we're so used to doing things a certain way. That is, you know, they say it would hardly be a fish that discovered water <laughs> because water's everywhere. And so, in that sense, the kind of the way that we do offices of of desks and and you know one person working on their task and then giving it to another person to work on their part of the task and um, you know lunch breaks and things like that that we don't question those but we don't ever really stop and say you know is this helping us do this task that we're trying to do right now which in healthcare which in you know flying jumbo jets which in all sorts of other domains of of you know, human activity, especially team-based human activity, people think a lot about, you know, what's the process? What do you do first? What do you do second? What do you do third? Who needs to be there? What's the space needs to be like? What are the tools that need to be at hand um, to do it? And if you think of creativity as just something that's genetic or something that happens, um, then you won't ever come to a place where you realize there's stuff you can do. There's really
1: simple stuff you can do, like get round tables. I mean, you know, it's pretty simple. You know, one of the things, David, that really – jumped out of me it was psychological safety. So, oh yes. So you talked about this efficiency. So somebody showing up to work and being brought to a meeting for, and doesn't need to be there or say the, the culture of the organization is one where everybody's on tender hooks and their cortisol levels are high. Mm-hmm. Always mm-hmm. the brain's going to work differently. It's going to, it's not going to have its full Relaxed kind of creative state, and therefore, yes. one thing you're you're going to get less efficient employees anyway. Certainly, there's going to be no innovation because there's going to be no literally headspace for innovation to happen.
0: Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah, and the sort of like the messing around with ideas or the sort of the playing around with ideas, the things that kids do. Right, they, that if you give a kid some stuff and they start playing around with it, like how does this work? How does this work? How does this? And and that's not considered like business like behavior. And we stop people from doing it and i think you're really that you're really onto something there that's really um true that we through the lack of psychological safety afraid to share their ideas i once i saw a picture of a, um you know what a ropes course is where they people do the trust fall yeah yeah so i saw a picture of a trust fall i was thinking like why are they doing that i thought well they, they don't trust each other right so in the organization you have a group of people that don't trust each other so they have to do the trust fall i'm thinking that looks really dangerous But then as i sort of started thinking back i thought well why are they doing that? Well, they're doing it because they don't want to share their ideas in meetings. <laughs> I thought, oh, you're unf- you're afraid to share your ideas in meetings, but you're willing to risk a skull fracture for the same people? <laughs> what? Um, and and it, it, so, so it was sort of like really absurd at one level. But then at another level, it was also that, wow, it must be in some organizations, it ha- takes it's an act of courage to share an idea. I thought, wow, if you have to be a hero to have ideas in your organization, you're probably not going to be super innovative. I mean if you have to be the one who, you know, just basically you have to, you know, jump off a fall backwards off a truck into other people's hands mm-hmm. in order to just say, look, I people I have this idea. Um, I think it's gonna be rough going in that kind of organization as far as innovation is concerned.
1: It's those people we talked about, I have been one where you're ahead of an innovation in in a place that doesn't really want change. And therefore, you see this gradual decline in those people's energy and their desire to come to work. And like you said, you start then moving towards your measurement is on small little incremental changes that are actually not innovation at all. And you start kind of drawing a line in the sand and going, oh, well, we we brought in a new communication tool. We brought in Slack or Yammer, right? <laughs> which is the furthest thing that you actually want to do in, in a role like that, but you're kind of forced to do it.
0: Right. Yeah, that's right. And be able to point at stuff like other innovative firms are doing this. Also, like when you when you just first started talking that old uh, piece there, you, you said you used that. It was interesting phrase. You said you brought in to do innovation, but no one wants to change. And it's sort of interesting, like people want innovation, but they don't want to change. And I think that's. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting because I think there are reasons for not changing. I mean, they're very rational reasons. It's just when you're doing innovation, that's it's not rational to do it then. If you're trying to be efficient, if you're trying to get home at 5 p.m., if you're trying to um, just make your, you know, your earnings the, the, this quarter and not worrying about the long term absolutely then it is don't change right just keep things the same um but if they brought you in this because they say look we're going to (laughs) die you know this organization we're going to die this industry is going away and then sort of keep you to these small changes that you're talking about well let's just put in slack or yammer um that's not going to move the organization anywhere and so sort of that irony of of you know everyone wants innovation but no one wants to change is it really
1: a sort of a truism uh, at that level yeah a nice segue again because We talked about group constraints and organize. So the next one is organizational constraints. And and it's a different thing because it, it is more about that. It's more about, well, if I'm going to innovate, I need to know what the strategy is so I can synchronize or I can segue with that strategy. Absolutely, yeah. And so the sort the of logic is that individuals work in groups, which were the first
0: two layers, then groups work in organizations. And the organization is, is, is like you said, is really different, I think. Um, first of all, strategy, the, the fastest way to get a uh, you know, an initiative or an idea uh, killed, an innovative idea, innovation initiative killed an organization is to have it not be strategic. That is to say, this thing we're doing, how does it line with our strategy? And and every bit of business school, of strategy education, of economics, all this that stuff says you want alignment, you want you know those kind of you want uh, people moving in the same direction, you want people on the same page. And if you don't know the strategy, that's a problem. And sometimes people in organizations they don't know the strategy. I mean, I'd love to help my organization move in the direction it's trying to move, but I don't know what the strategy is. You say, well, why not? Well, because it's a secret, or because um, we don't have one. Or because we have one i don't believe it or because it changes every month or because the new strategy that we're going to need is different than the old strategy we have but people are afraid to think that new strategy and so it's kind of interesting i mean it really puts you in this um interesting place where it's hard to think about um what is strategy and what is the strategy and so i think for me it's the, the strategy is is first of all we're moving to a what we call sort of a, a um we have lower locus of control. That is, we have a lot of control over ourselves as individuals of having ideas. We have a little bit more control, a little bit less, but still some control of groups. But The organization level is often hard to change the organization, how the organization uh, sees things. So strategy is a big one. The structure of the organization, there's like you know, all the, the sort of famous business stories of Kodak, of Xerox, of, of um, um, are basically stories of how you generate ideas in one context and you evaluate those ideas in different contexts. And so on the West Coast in the 70s, 60s, 70s, even into the 80s, all this crazy stuff was going on with Xerox and all these companies were inventing this stuff. And then Xerox headquarters was in New York. And so these crazy guys from California came to New York and they're like, dude, like we got all this cool stuff. It's like the computer and it's like, you know, it's gonna be cool. And the people in New York are like, well, can I use that on a copier? Like that's our business, copiers say, well, no, man, but we got this thing called the folder and a mouse and like a wig with Siggy wig. You know, what you see is what you get. It's like, it's really cool. And they're saying, well, I can't use it on a copy or like get out of here. I don't want to talk about it because we have a real business problem called protecting our industry. And so in that way, you could say, well, it's kind of a knucklehead thing in the New York people, but it really is a structural problem because the people in California see a different world. I mean, they see all this stuff happening and in, you know, in, in basically the Silicon Valley forming in front of their eyes. And then all New York sees is a bunch of foreign entrants coming into their copier market. Um, You'd argue that Kodak has a a similar problem. They have the sort of the not invented here problem. They invented the digital camera, but then didn't know what to do with it inside because it didn't meet any of the ways that they measure how good something is. The image quality was horrible. Couldn't figure out how to print the pictures. You know, there's no storage available, things like that. And so they just basically ignored it. And again, it might be a sort of a structural uh, kind of problem there. And I think the the to boil it down for me is is the the question of how resources are allocated across the organization. And so, I find it kind of funny sometimes. For me, as a professor in this business school where I work, um, you know, we're a good good business school. I have control over exactly three hundred dollars, um, not a penny more. If I have a, Penny more than that, I have to go to my dean and get literally a handwritten signature on a form, And so it's sort of funny because I think of, of if I listen, some of the organizations I work with, I can destroy so much more value than that so much more quickly. Uh, but somehow this thing that they can count, the dollars that they can count, they want to keep control over that. And, and that becomes like the the measure of like, how are you using your resources? How did you use your $300? Like, did you use it really well or not? And, and for what I do, that is completely irrelevant to the kind of important stuff, right, of, of you know, for me, of getting in organizations, talking to people, understanding what the issues are, trying to help people uh, articulate what they're feeling and seeing. Because all this stuff that I'm talking about is really just a rearticulation of what people have told me and what I've read and, and seen, uh, just to try to put it in, in, in language and framework that people can actually do something with. And not, it's not just meant as an academic exercise, but really that we can do something with. So again, the structure of the organization—like where do you put R&D, where do you put headquarters? This is the innovation um, officer, sort of like what you said, um, and maybe what your situation was—is you come in and you're not sure—is this a centralized one or is this decentralized? Do I have my own group of people and I try to infect the organization with innovation, or do I have um, you know a dual reporting structure? Do I—and and those questions really matter, and they probably matter more depending on how the organization is. Uh, um, Already structured and what the organization strategy already is, than anything you're going to do coming in from outside.
1: It's funny you use the same term I used to use. Um, in fact, you would find people who had similar energy, reverse vampires, <laughs> <you'd go> around, <laughs> infect everyone and change them over time. But but that one of the key things in an organization is it does take time. And we're about to go on to industry constraints, but before we do, you can change business models but until you change mental models, nothing's going to happen. Yes, right. Okay. So it'd be great, David, to talk about industry constraints because we're, we're kind of, I, I feel like what you've done here is you've started in with a, with a really high zoom lens and then you're zooming out and out and out and out. So we're on industry yes. constraints right now. Right, that's right. So I am uh, zooming out in
0: that way. The um, industry constraints, so I say if individuals work in groups, groups and organizations, organizations operate in industries. And here, um, this is sort of the world of the economist or even like the traditional business strategy kind of thinking, um, the kind of things I think there about competition, because we believe that competition leads to innovation. In fact, in the, you know, the U.S., the antitrust. So I think right now we have Sprint is, and uh, T-Mobile and Sprint want to join together. And the, the question of whether they're allowed to or not is whether that's going to decrease um, innovation that is giving better service at equal or lower cost to the consumer in the end. And that's the that's the that's basically the criteria that they use or the asset test is, are is the, are consumers better off by having them together than by having them apart? The last time T-Mobile tried to join, uh, AT&T tried to buy T-Mobile. Uh, it was turned down. And after that, we got um, unlimited streaming. We've got all kinds of crazy stuff that is just good for consumers uh, from T-Mobile. In some ways, they had to do this. They had to start acting crazy in order to to, to stay alive in that industry. And they were able to do that. Um, and so competition is one, although we can ima- also imagine that competition stops innovation because if it gets too competitive, then people will leave the market. They'll say, well, you know, I can't make any money doing that. So I'm going to leave that market. Um, the other thing that I like to think about is, is um, suppliers, or we might call them professionals. So here in areas like um, education, healthcare, care, law, um, why is there so little innovation or so little apparent innovation. I mean, there are things happening, there are things going on, but it's sort of not the kind of breakthroughs that we're seeing in technology or in communications or in other places. And I think it has to do with how we train people. So for me to become a professor, I have to get a PhD. To get a PhD, I have to get good grades all the way starting as a little kid. Um, I sort of did, and I sort of snuck in the side the side door. But it's very unusual <laughs> to, um, to to come in that way because it is um, um, it just just a way to do it. And also, um, imagine uh, I have a, a sister; she's a, was a physician, and she trained for so long. She must have trained; it must have been like thirty years of training um, before she gets to really truly practice. And then you think, okay, we're going to change everything, and she's like, no, we're not. I just did. I spent thirty years learning how to be competent now. Now you're not going to change everything and make me incompetent. So I have to you know, learn
1: it all again in that way. That's a really yeah. key one, David. Sorry to jump in here because that was good. the world is, the goalposts are constantly moving. So you said you snuck in the side door. But with that, you snuck in some new ways of thinking and you brought in new kind of you know mixes and synergies of thinking that wouldn't otherwise get into organizations. And I often find, and I said I loved your TED Talk, because it was very human as well and oftentimes we get so trained and so expert in a field that we we remove all the humanity or all the synergy or all the you know these fantastic mixtures of different disciplines we take them out of the process and it's usually through a cornucopia of lots of different thinking or lots of different data and lots of cross you know disciplinary skills that that magic happens and and that's what innovation really is
0: yeah that's good thanks yeah I like, I like how you're talking about that it is for me it's it's interesting the um because in some ways i felt like i i, I came through the side door only because it was you know after a certain point you only fit to do certain things in society and if you get too overeducated, you get fit for exactly nothing um I feel like I was always this way, they always sort of working between, so I'm biracial, I'm half black, half white, I'm bicultural, my mother's German, my father's American, and I was sort of always in between, and for me, the the, the distinctions of between this, you're this or you're that never really made sense because I was never this or that. In my sort of academic career, if you want to call it that, it was sort of weird to me that we would separate thinking about individuals from thinking about groups. But in fact, we do that. We have a group called psychology, and they're over on campus in one direction. We have a group called social psychology, and they're a different part of campus. And it's sort of weird because they don't they don't go to the same parties. <laughs> they don't like each other. You know, even though they have the psychology, they have the same word in their title. It's like, well, how, how can this be? And I think what you're saying is, is right, that we sort of, of become so overtrained and we start to only listen to ourselves or people like us. We try to produce more students who are just like us and who think the way that we think. And pretty soon, the, the cost of success as a, as a faculty member, for that matter, is that you have some kind of party line that you're towing and that by towing that line is, is how you move up in the organization. And this is an organization like like so many others. And I know that's true in many organizations where you know what it used to mean to be an IBM man. Um, you had to wear the blue you know the blue suit and the white shirt and the and the garters and all that stuff. And if you didn't do that, if you weren't able to conform, then you were just ejected. You were selected out of the system. And so I think the world's getting a little bit more tolerance—the right word—but more tolerant for people who do sort of work in the interstitial areas and. At times we need that. Sometimes we need to dig deep and sometimes we need to dig across. And so I feel like we're sort of in one of these digging across uh, areas right
1: now. People talk about artificial intelligence and in a world where artificial intelligence is going after expert roles. like So it's it's easier for AI to go after a certain task or a certain role, but it's it's not so easy to go across different realms or different disciplines. And therefore, multidisciplinary skills is actually... A very valuable thing in these turbulent times. Yes, that's right. I hadn't thought of it that way. That's really, uh, I think it's really profound and important to to,
0: um, to think of expertise as the thing that's going to be sort of, of uh, made. Um, and in fact, that would be consistent with like, you know, the history of the industrial revolution and the people who used to run the milling machines and they sort of figured out what the movements were and they recorded them. And then they put it into a CNC, you know, computer numeric control machine. All those people out of work just like that. And if that were to... The- Take that into the world of of general uh expertise where you're generally an expert, that's that's interesting implications.
1: Hence teaching people to be more human and and understand stuff like the next constraint, which is societal constraints, is really really key. Right. So uh so my my concept
0: here with societal constraints are that um, I have a um, colleague friend who's an anthropologist and he studies, um, they study down in Guatemala and, and, and Mexico, other places. And they One of the questions comes up with like, why did the Maya disappear? So the Maya, just this whole, it was like as if the Roman empire all of a sudden just collapsed and was gone. And one of the arguments is that it was because um, at least, you know, one of the more far out arguments is that it was because um, people were unwilling to give up their lifestyle choices in the, world of um in a world of climate change so there's climate change and people are unwilling to give that stuff up and so they just basically end up with this um problem they they the crops fail <laughs> everything collapses and all that so i say this kind of thinking like well why would a society not want to innovate like why would a society not want to find a new way to do things if the old way is sort of going away and the um sort of the the answers i come up with are things like identity so like you know what does it mean to be um one of us whatever us is is us is a you know an irishman or american a a german or whatever so there's this idea of of of, um our values and our and our identity and then there's basically the social controls What is the word I'm, i'm looking for basically how do we control people so when i'm driving down the street there are certain assumptions I can make that you'll drive on the other side of the street. and You won't just all of a sudden swerve into my side of the street. So that's called social control. and Some of it's internalized and some of it's, you know, in laws. Some of it's in different um, places, different ways that they bring it up. Um, and then the last one was sort of tradition and history. So these three things, my identity, how social control is exerted, and then also um, the traditions and history that are part of um, where I am and, and what I am um, sort of come into play as well. And so those those three things are interesting because if you think about who I am, what kind of person I am, and look at something like the Segway, you know, as a as a as a, you can argue there's all kinds of functional arguments you can make. Well, the battery didn't last long, or you know, it allows you to do all these things. But in the end, you, do you want to be one of those people who rides that thing? As when people see you going across the parking
1: lot, like, is that who you want to be? I think that's sort of an interesting one that really brings it home for a lot of people. Yeah. It's, it's like, how does, how does society see me or how, how would, would I like it to be seen? It's like the hipsters. Yeah. It's funny. Cause when, when I think of the six constraints you've called out, it's like they get increasingly easier in one sense in that when yeah. you start at the center of the individual, you're you're actually trying to change people. And it's like a difficulty matrix. It's kind of getting, it's really difficult. Uh-huh. And then when you come out, the last 1.6 the sixth constraint is technological constraints in a way right. in a way it's the easiest one you know it, it, because it's it, you're changing technology and not people yeah and it's sort of been the
0: default for a long time i think the idea of, of um, you know just throw more money in there throw more time in there so the manhattan project you know all kinds of things we're working on now even like lithium ion batteries um, it's not that, you know, that there aren't smart or creative individuals. It's not about the groups. It's not about the organizations on and on and on. Um, but it really is about the technology. And for me, the main point with this one is with, um, the, the sort of the technological constraints is that, uh, I sort of talk about like ma- making matter behave. Like I have an atom here and I need it over there. I have a hemoglobin here and I need it there. Cause if I'm doing brain surgery, I got to keep this body alive. And so sometimes those problems are just a matter of, of, um, of, money and time and D and science and basic science and those kinds of things and so then to take the whole picture then is to say well the the issue to go back to an analogy i was using earlier joke was about the airport bookstore so now let's say you have these six books a book on the individual and how to make people more creative, a book on groups and how to make psychological safety really important, a book on organizations and how to uh, uh, structure your innovation efforts, a book on um, industry and how competition and disruption works, a book on society and what values, social values, what are the social trends now, how are kids and millennials thinking about this and that, or a book on uh, technological development. So let's say coding and, you know, C++, C sharp, whatever. If you're in the bookstore and you happen to grab one of those books off the shelf, it will tell you that's the problem, that that's the problem of innovation. When in fact, it may be that you have a different problem, that maybe your problem is how you run groups and it's not the technological part, or maybe your problem is the technological part and your way you run groups is fine. If you don't see them all in in, in a framework that allows you to, to sort of compare and contrast them to say, which one of these creates the most explanatory power for the problem I'm trying to solve. If you can't see them next to each other, then I think you're sort of stuck with whatever you happen to grab off the shelf. If you're lucky, you grab the right book. But, you know, it's a one in five chance that you'll grab the right book off the shelf. So my goal was really to try to put these different perspectives next to each other and and the thing i mean sort of the the dirty secret i think of of academia is that we we keep these really strong barriers these really strong silos between like psychology and economics and social psychology and anthropology and 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 you know the engineering and science uh, um uh, disciplines and what happens is if you write a book like i did that talks about the cross the different disciplines um i get no love from any of them because the people who i'm more like i'm actually been trained more as a social psychologist than anything else I'm much more like them, but then the psychologists say, "Well, you're not one of us. You can't talk about us." And the economists say, "Yeah, you're not one of us. You can't talk about us." And then if I then I go back to my social psychologist and says, "Well, do, don't you still love me?" And they're like, "No, as long as you're talking to those guys and those other guys, we don't like you anymore." So you end up in this this funny place where you're trying to um, get at at, at, at at a at a bigger truth. And so what I decided to do with, with my book, and really my book is meant for managers, it doesn't. Throw off any great academic uh, kudos to me, but it does um, help people who are in the problem where they have to manage and they're trying to figure out like what do I do here? Do I hire more smart people? Do I restructure this part of the organization? Do I just sit tight and throw more money in there? And I think that's those are the kind of questions that um, I'm interested in and, and that I've taken the the, the, the sort of the real almost sort of dilettante views into these different um, academic disciplines to put this book together. Here's what you need to know about those psychologists. And and if you want to know more, go read there. But understand, this is their world. They think about what happens between your ears, like what's happening in your brain, which is really different than what happens when your competitor uh, comes out of nowhere, like Uber did or like Airbnb. Like it's really just a different thing. And you need to know which of those two books you want to look at or which one of those academic viewpoints you want to uh, um, observe from. So, so that's what I want to say. And then I, I, um, I've gotten lots of great feedback from managers. I've gotten zero great feedback
1: from academics. So I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> it's funny when you were saying that, and I could, I could picture you and I, always, I could empathize in a way where, you know, you're, you're trying to get other parts of the, the organization to, to come together you have to kind of wear a mask in certain roles and you have to, uh, you're like very much an actor in that you have to, and that doesn't feel good because you can't be yourself because you have to bring everybody with you. And I suppose yeah. it's like, while you're saying you got lots of great feedback from managers, you really need to be both a leader and a manager to make this happen or else need, you need huge, huge leadership support from the very, very top to make this happen. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. Well, David, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And where, where can people find out more? Because I know you write and you have a blog, et cetera.
0: Yeah. At this point, my uh, site website, creativepeoplemustbestop.com is the best way. I'm uh, currently revamping that, and that's going to go in different directions. And I... Um, I'm not super active in, in, on the online Twitter and, and things like that. But most of the stuff I do, I send out through. There's a, a mailing list on uh, that You can go there. There's also um, a survey. You can do a survey if you want to see if any of these innovation constraints are big in your life. Um, take a little survey. It'll email you with some responses back.
1: David Owens, Professor of Business Strategy and Innovation with Vanderbilt University and author of Creative People Must Be Stopped, Six Ways We Kill Innovation Without Even Trying. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.